On today's episode of the Training Peaks Coachcast, your source for the latest information about the art, science, and business of coaching. Have you been implementing polarized training all wrong? The science behind it might be simpler than you think. Dave and Cody sat down with Dr. Steven Seiler, one of the leading researchers on the subject, to learn more about polarized training and how you can incorporate it into your athlete's training plans. Hey everyone, Dave Shell here, and on this week's episode of the Training Peaks Coachcast, Cody and I were super excited to sit down with Dr. Steven Seiler. If you follow endurance training at all, I'm sure at this point you've heard of either 80-20 or polarized training. Dr. Steven Seiler is the one who's behind it all with his research. Well, you might have been approaching it all wrong. I know that I was certainly surprised to find out that I was. And so we talked to him about how you should actually be implementing 80-20 or polarized training, how it applies to low-volume athletes, and how you can apply the percentages to FTP to implement it with power training. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Training Peaks Coachcast. I'm your host, Dave Shell, and today I have the pleasure of being joined by Steven Seiler. Hi, pleasure to be here. Definitely appreciate you taking the time. Um, and I'm also joined by Cody Stevenson, the education specialist here at Training Peaks. Hello. Um, so you might know, I probably don't even need to introduce Steven. You probably know him. If you know anything about polarized training or 80-20 um, kind of principle, I'm sure you've heard his name at some point. So, Stephen, for those that maybe don't know you, could you just tell us a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, uh, well, I'm an American uh, by birth and and training, and then I moved to Norway 23 years ago. I'm professor in sports science. I've been the dean of a health sciences faculty, and I'm currently a university leader. At this point... um like I just said, most people probably know you from 8020. Mm. Um, you have that notorious slide that has the Matt Fitzgerald books, the <laughs> infographic, and people just kind of took that principle and ran with it. Right. Um, I imagine at this point you're probably tired of talking about it a little bit, but one thing that I've always wondered about is it definitely makes sense to me for a high-volume athlete, somebody mm. that's training upwards of 20 hours a week, but a lot of the coaches listening to this their athletes might be training six to eight hours a week. So sure. how does that 80-20 principle apply to that sort of athlete? Well, I'm not tired of talking about it because I just get so much feedback from recreational and amateur athletes, and they say this actually does work. And, and so it's important because we have so many. I, I think that segment of, of athletes, these, these people doing four to eight hours a week, time pressure, they tend to be the ones that get the distribution wrong. They tend to be the ones that train too much threshold or too much red line because they think that's the most effective or efficient way to train. So uh, based on both the research that we've done with that category of of athlete and a lot of feedback, uh, I can say with my hand over my heart that it definitely also works for that group. As you you seem to travel around and do a lot of talking on these subjects, and so has there been anything, or even through social media, people contacting you, has there been any misconceptions about the principle of the 
Yeah, the biggest misconception is that they think 80-20 is, is time-based, meaning that 20% of the time on their heart watch needs to be high intensity and 80% is low intensity. And when we first introduced 80-20, we said it's based on sessions. So for every 10 training sessions you do, about eight of them should be sessions where there's essentially no high-intensity work, that you're just you're out, it's low intensity, and about two of those ten rough, would be uh, interval sessions or races or some other kind of high-intensity session. So it was a session distribution, not time and zone. If you, if you convert the session distribution to time and zone, then 80-20 will come closer to being 90-10 based on time. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And yeah. One of the other questions I had for you, because, you know, it kind of made sense to me for an athlete that's training a lot of hours that, yeah, they could do that because they had the time to do it. And there is so much information, maybe hype around high intensity interval training. And if you're time crunch, maybe that's the way to go. But it sounds like you could very easily apply this to a low volume athlete if you're looking at sessions rather than time and zone. Sure. And, and one of the things that is typical is that the the duration of the sessions tends to be kind of flat, meaning that they, they'll go out for 45 minutes or maybe an hour run. And what I'm going to ask them to do is to at least take one of those sessions in that limited time schedule each week and stretch it, extend it. Instead of thinking intensity, if we think of intensity as a vertical component, we want to think of duration of workouts as a a horizontal or an extensive component and that is another way to increase the stimulus uh, and a lot of a, a lot of recreational athletes tend to shorten up their workouts they choose to go a bit higher intensity instead of getting that duration and duration is important because things happen in the second hour of a run that don't happen in the first hour but the only way to get there is to run the first hour or cycle the first hour you can't you can't hop over. Um, a lot of your original work was done in Nordic skiers using heart rate data. For our coaches and athletes, uh, coaching triathletes and cyclists, are the principles pretty transferable to power as well, or should they be throwing away the power meters and going back to their heart rate monitors? No, I, it's just that you need to calibrate the power up against the physiological stress. So, uh, But once you have a good feeling for that, I, I'm doing myself a lot of cycling right now up on a cycle ergometer in my loft, and, and the power is a wonderful tool, but I calibrate it against heart rate and make sure I'm kind of where I, where I actually think I am. That's the tricky part is a lot of – there is a tendency – among among our cycling people with all their FTP tests and that, that they overestimate their threshold power. They almost never underestimate it, but they all, often overestimate it because it's a, it's a kind of a, it's one of those badges. You want to use the biggest number you can in, in discussions. We call that vanity FTP. Vanity FTP. Good. <laughs> I'll have to remember that. Yeah. So with that, I know that I think I've probably, I mean, I've, search through some of the stuff you've posted and things like that and really trying to find what is that percentage of FTP and we at Training Peaks we always talk about FTP being really the max effort you could cycle for around one hour but a lot of people approximate that through a 20 minute test and then subtracting 5% so is there any kind of rule of thumb as far as equating those zones to with the 80-20 it's kind of three zone system so where would those percentages line up with that system? Right so what I've and what I've 
said is if you, if you don't have access to all this fancy equipment, but you can measure power, then do a six-minute test as a, te- as a measure of maximum aerobic power. That would correspond to kind of your VO2 max power. Do a 60-minute test. Meaning, sounds terrible. <laughs> yeah, but you guys, you're cyclists. That's what you're made to do. Cycling races are very seldom 20 minutes long, uh, but we tend to want to shorten everything up. So 60 minutes is the badge of, of power. It is the traditional hour of power in cycling. It, it, we should all think, yeah, Let's let's find out where I am compared to the 440 watts that uh, <laughs> that is the current world record, probably 430 something like that that was held. And so do the hour. You don't have to puke, but but you get a good number that is a reference number that then will represent pretty well your th- that physiological red line or maximum lactate steady state. So I'm a big fan. You know I'm going to keep stay tough on this you know don't keep shortening the test and extrapolating but do the actual hour so one of the questions um that i've had is there you've got a slide that shows that when we're talking about periodization that i think it's a an elite skier maybe or maybe an elite rower that really the they were doing some intensity year round and so i'd always wondered does it matter when that intensity comes in and so i'm as you're getting closer maybe to a priority race or something like that, those eight weeks leading up, are you increasing the amount of intensity you're doing or more sessions, or how do you approach that? I think the basic distribution will stay the same, but we're going to sharpen. The intensity may come in the form of uh, more – it may come in the form of races. You may use some low-level races as specific training. Let's remember, usually the goal is that an interval session is designed to help us prepare to be able to do a continuous session, a continuous bout. That's a race. So continuous bouts are the the highest form of high-intensity work is to be able to actually hold that 90-plus percent for the right. whole 10K. That's the ultimate goal. So in that peaking process, what are we going to do? We're going to get more close you know closer to race pace we're going to try to extend the the sessions we're going to make sure that the low intensity stays low maybe even lower than normal to really ensure that we have recovery for these uh tough in uh, intensive sessions so that's what we see is the 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 athletes hold the distribution but the high intensity gets a bit higher and longer Low intensity may go even lower to compensate and make sure recovery happens. Total volume may go down. Okay, so you you may, in a in a kind of a race preparation period, you may go from ten hours down to seven or eight. You know, to to make sure that you're fresh, add an extra rest day or so forth. So, people people have a tendency to be scared to death of rest, uh, but that's that's another thing. Is rest is 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 your friend. If you've done the work, you know, resting is important to be able to truly mobilize everything on race day. One of the other things you just mentioned, interval sessions, and one thing that's kind of fascinated me is you did some work with um, athletes, and I believe you just told them for set durations, go as hard as you can Mm -hmm. for whether it's four minutes or eight minutes or 12 minutes. And they experienced athletes or anyway, were pretty good at Mm self-regulating what they could do with that. And I, 
I know as a coach myself that we're always looking for the next, you know, magic interval set and things like that. I love the simplicity in this. And so what did you find with that? And is there kind of an optimal duration for an interval? Well, what we found is that if we prescribe four times 16 minutes, so that's 64 minutes of total work, that puts them basically at their maximum lactate steady state, the upper end of their threshold. If we say, just go do what you can. If we, if we prescribe four times eight minutes, now we're at 32 minutes of total work. That'll put them at about 90%. They'll be able to hold. And if we put them at four times four, then they're going to end up at 93, 94%. They're going to have 12 millimolar lactate. They're going to be really suffering. So it puts them in either the upper end of zone three, zone four, or zone five in that uh, five zone model. Okay. When we prescribe six, four times 16, four times eight, four times four. Now, what we found is that four times four is extremely demanding in terms of perception. It's hard. Blood lactates are really high, but it's not more effective. In fact, it may even be less effective as a training stimuli than accumulating a f- more minutes at slightly lower intensity. So, and, and that's what we see also with the elite athletes is they don't necessarily go to that very highest intensity very often. They go, they, but they collect a lot of minutes and they do some amazing workouts in zone four. So, you know, six times 10 minutes at, at 90% of heart rate max. That's a lot of minutes to be sitting at 90, 91, 92% of heart rate max uh, in a workout. But it's more sustainable. It's, it's easier to come back from that one it, it appears than it is to come back from an even higher intensity session that's shorter. So as much a toleration to duration as a tolerance to increasing intensities. Yeah, the duration seems to be something that we can use to our advantage. We can collect minutes, uh, and it's more sustainable than to keep pushing intensity because there's a ceiling on intensity and how high you can go. And when we really get close to max, the, the stress responses are big, and, and it's tough to recover. And it's just psychologically so demanding to, to be there during the interval session that then the athlete starts to dread these sessions even more. And, and they need to be able to kind of handle interval sessions as part of the work week. When you were doing those uh, four times eight, I think you said that's around 90%. Yeah. What would the RPE or the rating of perceived exertion be associated yeah, with Yeah, it'll start at, at, at 14, 15 after the first one, and it'll be 17, 18 at the end. You know, so it climbs. Uh, so it's, I'm not saying it's easy, but it's, but it's doable. Whereas when we do the four times four, we found that some of them, they were hitting 19, even 20. So, what's that uh, translate to on the ten point scale? Well, ten. Ten. Okay. So <laughs> they're, they're 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 maxing out. They're they're just they're hitting it and they're bombed. So most you know when you talk with elite endurance athletes, they don't they they don't go there very often. They don't go all the way to ten except on race day. And that's another thing you um, I've seen you talk about too is those Nordic skiers. There's a lot of time they're in zone five. They're going up a hill or something like that, and they're doing a lot of time at zone five in the race, but then in an actual training session they're very rarely going there that's, is that that's right? what we see because it's it's not it's so costly uh, and they want to be able to have another gear in races so the physiological training the, the the adaptations transfer up but we keep this 
the stress and the psychological component of it more sustainable. So that uh, David Martin, who worked with Australian cyclists, uh, Green Edge and, and that group back some years ago, he talked about this as well. He, he's a physiologist, but he, came, he became more and more f- interested in the psychology. And he said that the, the cyclists wanted to know they had an, uh, an extra gear on race day. So testing themselves and training. Yeah, so they didn't want to go there too often because then if you know that if you've mobilized that too often, you just don't feel like you have that place to go uh, where you can really stretch yourself. So they they tend to think in terms of pacing the training process, if that makes sense. You're not just pacing in a race, but you also you're pacing how you load your body over the course of a training year. It's almost an economy of mental toughness. Yeah. That's a good way to think of it. And, and also we're trying to build biological durability, and but then keep the psychology sustainable. Right. And it, so now there's we see more and more people riding indoors. And there's a lot of apps that have come up um, to promote that, like Zwift, um, Sufferfest, a lot of those things. And a lot of what that is kind of centered around is, again, short amount of t- training time. And so doing intensity in that training and time. And one thing I've noticed is that you might be really um, excited in the winter, get to catch up on Netflix and things like that as you're going through this, but all of a sudden you get to spring and you can ride outside, and now it's time to actually do some real work and you're just not motivated anymore. And so yeah. I think that's a great point is kind of moderating that. We can yeah, I, I don't want – I train a lot indoors too. I'm in Norway, and, and uh, I don't want every session to be a suffer fest. I, I want some sessions to be a Netflix day, uh, you know, and, and I just sit there for two hours and, and able to relax and, 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 and uh, watch the Netflix show or whatever it is, the, the, the documentary. But then, yeah, there's going to be some Sufferfest days, uh, maybe about 20% of the time. Uh, <laughs> so that I, I'm not saying that there are not days that should not be true, tough Days in Norway, we say going into the cellar. You know, how right. deep do you go down in the cellar? And we need to go there sometimes, but you can't live there. It's I not, love that. It's, yeah. not, it's not sustainable. One thing that that I've seen as power meters become more widely used, like I would say, so as part of my job at Training Peaks, we travel around doing what we call Training Peaks University, where we do a course for coaches. When I started doing this five years ago, we would ask the coaches in the room who coaches somebody with a power meter, and maybe two or three hands would go up. Um, and then we'd say, who owns a power meter? And less hands would go up. And at that time, they were so expensive. But over the last five years, the price has come down greatly. And so everybody seems to have a power meter. With that, there's this idea of specificity and looking at a race and the demands of the race. And so using mountain bike as an example, I might look at an entire mountain bike race file and say, okay, well, during this race, they're going to be going um, called zone six. So like going anaerobic and doing these things and then trying to mimic that in training. So going back to the, um, Nordic skiers and going to zone five, do you think there's a place for that? Or do you think, is there transfer with, if you're sticking to mostly zone four, that when you get to race day, you're still going to be able to go there or is there other things at play? Well, the evidence is, that, yeah, if you're doing high-intensity aerobic interval training, you're also going to get an anaerobic effect. Uh, but you might, if, if you know your race is going to involve some big anaerobic bursts or you're time-trialing a, a 
three or a four minute race or something like that, then yeah, I can see doing a, a three to four week cycle where one interval session becomes more of an anaerobic capacity session. So that's a different scheme with a lot higher intensity, uh, shorter intervals. But, but then I have to say that is going to be like fresh fruit, meaning it will go, it will not last long. So you'll get, a, you'll get a good effect out of three, maybe three or four of those sessions. You can get a bump in, in that anaerobic capacity reserve, but it won't be sustainable. So you don't need to be doing it all the time. You don't need to have that as a, as a regular part of your training load. Uh, then I would say it would end up being, it would detract from your overall capacity build because it'll be like that extra little battery on top but it's but it's not a very sustainable resource. It disappears pretty fast. You stagnate quite fast with that kind of training. So it should be done as a kind of a peaking and then and then use it and then go back to the more basic capacity building after the race. Does that make sense? It, it totally yeah. does. And I, I'm thinking about, um, I think it's Vladimir Isserin, yeah. that, you know, did some stuff around block training and in that he kind of has these general, the time it takes to adapt to a certain type of, type of training and how quickly that decays. Right. It sounds similar to what you were just saying. Yeah. So is that pretty, I understand. Yeah, the, 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 the adaptations associated with increasing buffer capacity and some of these cellular level things associated with anaerobic work, they are fairly rapid adaptations, but they also, they also decay fairly fast. Uh, and, and it just costs so much psychologically and physiologically to get there, to induce those adaptations, that that's not something I'm going to do all year round. It would be unsustainable. I'm going to just top off the tank when I need it, if I, when I know the race requires it. I have a, uh, maybe a technical question. Um, have you done any work or seen anything about manipulation of recovery intervals between work intervals? Is it... Is there a lot to be gained from that, or is it just whatever you can, whatever you need to be ready for the next interval and complete the workout correctly? Yeah, that's a good question. We've done we've done actually some work on the the recovery duration for for typical long intervals, and I'm going to define long as let's say uh, two minutes and up. Uh, what we found is is that about two minute recovery is a is appropriate. It works. It's enough. Four minutes doesn't make you you don't really go faster with four-minute recovery, but two minutes is a bit better than one minute. We see an improvement in the the power average they're able to maintain in an interval session if they get that extra minute rest. So two minutes seems to work pretty well for typical aerobic interval sessions. You don't need to use heart rate recovery. There's a heart rate drift. Mm -hmm. Uh, So two minutes just is enough for for some recovery processes at the cellular level so that you can continue to to add on intervals you will slowly fatigue but it's it's an appropriate amount of recovery now if you go down to that micro interval world where you're talking 30 seconds on 30 seconds off 15 on 15 off those kinds of things then that ratio of work to rest becomes really critical really oh yeah 
So you can you can manipulate with these micro intervals up and down, and you can go from being basically a workout that doesn't get you into the high intensity range to a workout that'll just you know you'll crash in minutes, depending on how you manipulate. Whether it's thirty five thirty ten versus ten thirty fifteen fifteen. So there's and this goes back sixty years. This was done way back in by Swedish investigators looking at. 30-30 versus 15-15 and so forth. So, But the question is, is, is that the kind of interval training that should be your bread and butter? Yeah. Probably not. I think a lot of coaches will be happy to hear that with the longer intervals because that's a place to save a lot of time. If they're used to a one-to-one work-to-recovery interval and they're doing eight- or ten-minute intervals, it sounds like they're gonna, they can shorten workouts a lot and get more out of their athletes yeah, with that. It, it really doesn't need to be fancy. And, and, and I know there's, a, there's a, a gazillion ways to organize an interval session, and there's all these different variables. But the, the key variables are what's the intensity of the work period, what's the duration of the work period, and then what is the total accumulated work. You know, that's where you want to focus. And then your rest is... It can be pretty consistent, you know, two, three minutes. That's going to be enough. Um, so we don't need to make this into rocket science. It's not. I love that, and that's. I think that's why I'm such a fanboy of yours. Is that I just <laughs> love that you're. I love that you've done so much research, but that you do bring it back to the practical application of it for an, either a coach or an athlete. And it's like you don't have to be in a lab and doing all this stuff that you, as long as you follow some of these. Oh, no. There's a lot of Olympic champions that have never been in a lab. And we have to remember that, you know, that they, they've they gotten all the way to the top and never had a scientist tell them what to do. So, we had, you know, that's totally possible. With these, I guess, time-crunched or, or maybe amateur athletes, a lot of them have jobs that require them to train. on the Like Ironman, for example, typically they're going to have a long run and a long ride, but because of the nature of their job and their work week, they're doing it every Saturday and Sunday. So does that have any impact as far as adaptation, kind of getting into that seven-day cycle, or could there be a better way out there, and how might we find it? Yeah, I mean, I do have a lot of respect for the realities of the seven-day cycle. It's very hard to go against it. But we do, it, it's not biological as much as it, is, as it is cultural. So in an ideal world, probably as an athlete, we, it, would, it might well be that they would, they would function better and be able to organize their training better if they thought in terms of a different number of days. It might be a shorter number, or it might be a, a longer span, like 10 uh, but I'm not sure how to, you know, how to get around the work week. Uh, the, so our bio- biology and our workology is not necessarily in sync in terms of these, these systems. Uh, so I, I don't have a, a magic recipe. I think for elite athletes, we may see that, you know, maybe big data is going to help us look at some things, and we may end up finding that different, different numbers of days as microcycles work better uh, but we're going to have to as coaches we're going to just do the best we can to work within the constraints we're going to make sure we have some vari- variation uh, if they have to do weekend if it only the weekend is possible then let's figure out how to make those different those weekends progressive how to you know how to make each weekend 
enough different that there's a new stimulus that they they're, they're still both psychologically and physiologically being exposed to something new they're stretching themselves they're we're developing them towards that la- that later goal so before i let you go i just curious do you have any tips for the coaches listening so again these are coaches that are coaching busy athletes that do have a job like what are maybe one or two things that they might focus on to ensure that their athletes are reaching their goals well i think you're going to have to help your athlete understand that harder is not better that that's you know that they will have a tendency to try to solve every problem with more intensity and you will have to be as a coach the uh you know the stable influence that says trust the program don't be afraid of of long low intensity sessions that your recovery your sleep those are also part of training not just how hard you worked each training session so that is what you as a coach you have to be their conscience because they're usually highly motivated right so it's not usually a problem to get them to work hard it's a problem to get them to know when to not work so hard that and i see that with my daughter with athletes i work with it's just the most common situation is we live in a culture of high performance where these young kids coming up they they just want so desperately to succeed they want to you know, or your master's athletes, they want to get a personal best and whatever, and they tend to just push too hard instead of, the, of having enough patience to do the work and, and over a, a little bit longer time frame. So I think that's what coaches right now have to, to really help, help the athletes do is help them be patient, help them trust in the, the total training program that the uh, Shanane Flanagan who won the New York City Marathon last year I think she was only third this year she said something I love she said even on ordinary training days I'm preparing for something extraordinary and I think that's a great way to think that 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 ordinary 90 minute run at low intensity is part of the preparation for the new 10k personal best that's great so really appreciate your time. Um, I know that I just got so much out of that, and I know that everybody else listening will as well. Is there any resource that you would recommend, either online or books, um, where they could find more out about what you were talking about? Well, um, I'm on Twitter. I said I would never tweet some years ago, but that proved to be wrong. Uh, there's a good, there's a nice ecosystem of sports science and athletes people on Twitter, so they can find me on Twitter. And then from Twitter, I, I have links to all, uh, almost all of my published research on ResearchGate, which is this kind of uh, Facebook for research geeks uh, like me, where you can find research articles. And I, I even put out presentations and and things like that. There's a lot of videos on the internet and so forth. So if people want to know what I'm up to and what I'm thinking, it's pretty easy to find uh, through ResearchGate or through Twitter. Perfect. And we'll put that in the show notes. Thank you so much for your time. You bet. Thank you. Thanks. We hope you enjoyed our talk with Dr. Steven Seiler. If you want to find out where to follow him on social media, as well as check out the articles that he referenced, go to the Training Peaks blog. You can also find an online recording of the 2018 Endurance Coaching Summit live from Manchester. 
There you can listen to Dr. Steven Seiler's talk. You can also check out great speakers such as Oscar Eukendroop, Sarah Broadhead, and many more. Enter CoachCast ECS20 to receive 20% off your online purchase. Until next time. 